Hello, 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 and welcome to the Heartfelt Clubhouse. I'm your host, BBC, and I am joined here today with an amazing man who has done so much, not only for me, but for so many different communities, Tyler Jensen. How What's are you doing, up? Tyler? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, we are so excited to have you here. You're actually the first um, professional to actually step on to the clubhouse. So if you wouldn't Pressure. mind, you, yes, could you go through your credentials, what you're working on, the whole shebang? Yeah, so I am a, and our licensure changes probably every two years, so the letters are always moving. It's like alphabet soup. So I'm a licensed counselor in both Iowa and North Carolina. I've been practicing for four plus years now, and where my practice is rooted in is trauma. So some therapists are behavioral, some are, um, everybody has their niche. Mine is all about developmental and shock-based trauma. That's where I live. Okay. Um, got my master's at East Carolina University after graduating from Iowa State with a BS in psychology. So um, that's my current credentials. Training, we have to get them every a certain amount every two years to stay licensed. So that changes all the time. But professional in Carolina and Iowa at the moment. Awesome. And I feel like you're not one to super brag, but you have opened your own practice. That is huge. It's something that I don't know. Therapists, a lot of therapists I know have obviously our own stuff. Everyone has their own stuff. Why we're in therapy that's where a lot of therapists become therapists is to figure out their own stuff and there's this notion that if you break away from agency type work or um like a group practice that is debilitating it'll never grow i can't do it by myself there's a bunch of imposter syndrome um or they just don't want to um but i think it's becoming much more popular of an option for clinicians who no longer, I won't say need, but they're no longer in the point of their career in which they need like constant supervision. So in the first two years of my career, we have to, like it's mandatory. Now, as you, as you move on to what you're developing your niche into, you'll see more and more practitioners really open up their own and just do that niche. Okay, awesome. Well, one thing that I find super interesting, I will say like, you know, I do have my minor in psychology. I really do want to inevitably like get my master's, but for the time being, from what I know, is it difficult to work from state to state? So with it has been, yes, COVID has thrown a really interesting wrinkle into it. A lot of, so it all has to basically do with insurance. Okay. Insurance and scope of practice. So within our ethics, there's always a scope of practice. And within it, state boundaries, everyone has their license. They're actually working on laws now to make license portability a lot easier. So now um, a license in Iowa can be recognized in X amount of states, which is amazing. I think they've been fighting for that for since counselors were a thing probably. So is it difficult just because of the red tape? 
And insurance, yeah. some insurance companies will go, uh-uh, you're not there, so you can't practice there. But with telehealth, they've actually put out different, every state's different, but they've put out different laws saying, yes, you can. Um, as long as COVID's been a thing, I've been able to see people potentially temporarily, let's say a kid goes to college, I've been able to see them because they started in North Carolina and went. Um, but I don't, I haven't heard of that changing anytime soon. Telehealth okay. being taken away because of how important it's been for everyone. And with the addition of those portability laws getting more popular. So I hope it gets easier. But in terms of telehealth, some people are adverse to the screen. I'm, I'm fine with it. I can do this job just as well as I can if somebody's sitting on that couch behind me. Yes. Um, which a lot of people question. It's like you do EMDR where you have to do back and forth finger movement. How do you do that over a screen? So it, I think it depends on the clinician, how comfortable they are with like technology. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, you touched on a lot. I do, I'm going to put a pin in a few things, come back to them later. For the time being, I will say that we at the Heartfelt Club, we've actually sponsored three men so far and put them into therapy. They all chose a telehealth option. So I love that. I think what you're doing clearly makes an impact that still provides the same amount of value. So kudos to you. Now, with regard to like your actual specialty, mm-hmm. can you kind of walk us through, um, I guess, potentially when you feel like someone would want to step into a therapy focused on trauma and then how you touched on your two main, I guess, ways of working with them, those therapy yeah. processes. Sure. So when can someone work on trauma? Whenever. It's present every single day, potentially in the smallest of things. A lot of times when people hear the word trauma, they think of like capital T, what we call shock trauma. So it's accidents, violence, really risk to safety and physical Mm -hmm. well-being. But there's also developmental trauma since we've been potentially in the womb that's below all that. So shock trauma like sits on the shoulders of developmental. Gotcha. So that can look like all types of things. And usually that looks like shame. So it's anytime I see somebody comes with anxiety or depression or um, bipolar, BPD, you name it. There's always a shame-based component. Sometimes anxiety is actually the, it's the presenting issue in the beginning but it came from this negative identity down here. So let's say you wanted to get like, let's say somebody was dealing with like test anxiety. I I see that all the time. Um, College kids going through, they're like, I gotta pass these things to get into school. Uh, It's freaking me out. Yeah, it makes sense. But I wonder what's down here. Let's say it's math. They have to do that component. There's a lot of dialogue about, I'm just terrible at math. I'm dumb, I can't get it. That's the shame. Yeah, that's that lie that's present. And that's pushing on that anxiety because they probably want to do really well. They want to get a 90. But since they're dumb at math, they're probably not going to study. Or if they do, the studying is telling them all these negative things about themselves. They're going, no, Mm -hmm. thanks. 
Yeah. So it seems like anxiety, but this thing down here that's saying you're dumb or not good enough, that's where the developmental trauma piece comes in. Gotcha. Sometimes people come in here for all types of things. They don't necessarily come in here just for trauma. They'll come in here for everything across the board, but in some way, shape, or form, we're probably getting back to that because of how old those narratives are. Yes. So for me, it comes up every single session just because of how like pervasive it is. It's, it touches yeah. everything. Makes everything yeah. worse. That's so interesting. Yeah. Was, was that something you, and thank you for diving into that. I think you mm -hmm. explained that so well. And I think that's a lot of a misconception that people hold of like, I can only go to therapy if it's like a super big trauma. Otherwise I don't deserve it. Yep. And that's just not the case. And there's that shame part of I don't deserve it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Is that something you like expected to see even when you were getting your, your BS in psychology? Did no. you kind of, okay. No, so I had no clue. That, yeah. Even in getting my master's, it's like, a little tiny blip because you're you have to learn all of this compacted things and my degree wasn't only like talk therapy but it was also substance abuse so I no longer do that component but we still had to learn it so it was truncated everything was truncated okay. so trauma for me was like oh that's fun and it's gone yeah. it wasn't until I landed in my group practice in North Carolina where that was really pushed to learn I'm super grateful for all of that because that's where all that came from. So in my BS, I had no, I, I couldn't even tell you what it would look like because I was one of those men who are like, if I go to therapy, then I'm then I have a problem. Wow. So I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna white knuckle it and figure it out. So the trauma component came much later, postmasters. Wow. But since then, has really dove into. So, and no clue. Okay, that's so interesting. Um, I also think you touched on a really good point, and something I noticed when I was, you know, exploring your Instagram, you mm -hmm. said, "I'm your therapist's favorite therapist." Mm -hmm. I love that because, like we said, you know, everyone needs therapy. Everyone yeah. should have therapy. Um, is that something you in the counseling world and the psychology world, do you also have a therapist and do you have clients who are therapists, things like that? So I've had a handful of fellow therapists come see me um, because I'm involved in trauma trainings multiple times a year. The reason why those are so helpful is because to be able to do the model and really practice what you preach have to do it. So with EMDR, I had to process all of my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, with what I'm getting trained in now, which is called NARM, which brings like trauma. Now, you don't have to go digging for it. It's here anyway. You have to do it. So you're processing it. And sometimes you're processing it in front of like, a room full of people which can it's its own trauma. Um, which you sit with and process, but um, therapy for a long time, the notion is like, you have to go when something's bad or something's wrong. You can go just to explore authentic self. You can yeah. go just to make improvements on things that are already good. 
Um, there's this big misconception that something has to be like wrong, bad. Yeah. I think therapy's for everybody. Yeah. Oh yeah, I fully agree. Um, well, that is super interesting. And I think it would probably help our audience to kind of dive in on the two, you know, types of therapy you just touched on. Mm-hmm. Um, and even myself, like I'm familiar, but I've, I've never gotten to see it in practice or anything like that. Um, but it's, it's really cool, especially since you can do them via telehealth. Yeah. Um, so the two main modalities I stick to, and so there's like four ones that I've been trained in so far, but there's two that really just are the main modes of practice. Okay. So as a very green clinician, I was first trained on a behavioral form of therapy, which I don't do anymore. I think behavioral stuff's great for temporary things. Okay. Putting a bandaid on things, stability, short-term stuff. Awesome. Skills work. Great. So that you can then dive deep and get to the old stuff. However, the first trauma related thing was EMDR. And it's something very like in vogue right now. Like a lot of people have talked about it. Um, It's getting more and more popularity. I think that's probably the number one thing people contacting me that they're looking for. So normal EMDR, because my brand's a little different. Normal EMDR is about reprocessing traumatic material. So let's say you were an avid motorcycle rider, you get in a motorcycle accident. Obviously you think you're going to die potentially. So that's going to stick in the limbic part of your system and in your brain you're going to go into survival mode when you get in an accident. In that moment, your frontal cortex that processes reason and logic literally goes offline. Mm. It flips its lid, goes dark, and you survive. Later on, it'll come back, but it's all that stuff is still down here. So now every time you try to ride a bike again, you could maybe like you approach the bike and get wigged out. No, thanks. Um, the smell of burnt rubber can trigger that. And you're no, thanks. You're surviving again. You feel like you're going to throw up every time you approach a stop sign. You don't know why. It's because it's this trapped, like malignant material that doesn't have a time stamp, doesn't have a date stamp, just lives in the older, more primal parts of your brain. Mm. What EMDR does is every night when you sleep, your eyes wig out and go back and forth really, really quick um, during REM sleep. EMDR hijacks that. So it's, it's a really scripted model, but what you're doing basically is accessing that stuck material, talking about it in a safe way to bring it for the first time maybe into the logic part of the brain, making sense of it, reprocessing it now when you're safe with eye movement, just like you do when you sleep. Very like high overview, but it's using your bodily functions you already do to reprocess trauma material. It's it's from the, um, I don't get this wrong so they don't flame me, but it's the adaptive information processing model. So it's introducing something new to that really old memory. Okay. It's a lot of questions like, what do you notice now? Um, I'm really scared. Okay, let's notice that. And then you start stimulating the eye movement and that channel of fear clears. Wow. 
Then I ask, what do you notice now? So it's introducing new material with the old stuff because normally our brain is very good at just going, okay, that's no longer helpful. Yeah. Like if you've told a joke and it goes stale and everybody looks at you, <laughs> like, oh no. You're like, noted, never again. Uh-oh. Yeah, but <laughs> if that was traumatic though, every time you try to tell a joke, your throat would close, face would flush, feel like you're going to throw up or want to run away. And you don't know why. Like, what's going on? Yeah. So that reprocessing would let go of the things that are no longer helpful for you to, like, survive. Wow. That's EMDR. The reason I said mine's a little different or ours is a little different is I learned what's called somatic and attachment-focused. EMDR. So it's even more like niched and yeah. it focuses a lot on the body. So that's the somatic component. Yeah. So in that motorcycle accident, let's say they even look at their bike and their chest just hurts. Mm. That's material too. It can't speak English, but it's speaking loudly, probably. Yes. Um, and then the attachment component. That's what allows us to go really old because our attachments will still come up. Let's say mom was unsafe when we were small and let's, let's just say, for example, she yelled a lot and now in your adult life, let's say your partner yells at you and you overreact. I hate that word. <laughs> I've deleted that word from my vocabulary. Good. Good. So you're reacting. It's just to what? Gotcha. So that's probably that attachment all the way back then to what yelling represented, which is probably a jeopardization of safety. I'm unsafe, mm-hmm. so I got to survive again, just like I did when I was small. So we process those attachments, so that's why we can go so old. Gotcha. It's really away from potentially birth. I process birth over the internet, which has been wild. <laughs> that is birth fascinating. Yeah, and wow. I process my own birth over the internet. That is so interesting. So it can be done. Yes. So that's EMDR. That's the safe model of EMDR, somatic and attachment focus. Um, the second one, which is very new to me at this point, is what's called NARM. And in the therapy world, everyone loves like big old acronyms. Like we just can't help ourselves. Mm-hmm. So NARM stands for the Neuroaffective Relational Model or Complex <laughs> PTSD. Gotcha. So far, the main difference, because it looks at similar things, the main difference is EMDR, you go old. You're chronologically like digging. You go real far back. In NARM, it is here and now, and it's in the present. Because that trauma will still show up in the present. It's showing up now. Yeah. So it it postulates you don't necessarily need to go all the way back. You can just really focus each, each session where it's at which has made trauma work a lot easier. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think I think what, a lot of what I've been hearing feedback-wise, like when people do reach out and they want resources, yep. a statement I hear so much is like, well, what's the point? It's not going to change the past. Yep. And I think you did a really good job of exposing how, you're right, it's not going to change the past, but can we release the main, the things in the past that have stayed with us and that is no longer serving us. So it's more of like rewiring or or 
creating a new narrative, right, yep. about the past. There's there's literally a law in our brain that is called Hebb's law. Hebb's law is neurons that fire together wire together. <laughs> so in those memories, there is just attachments that are wired together. And by going back and reprocessing, does the event change? No. But does every attachment to it and representation and every lie it tried to tell about you change? Yeah, potentially. Awesome. So your entire sense of self could transform and change. Wow. Oh, so I hear that a lot too. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, within within the field, and you've you've been you know building your career thus far. Mm -hmm. How how have you kind of seen this mental health space either become more accepted or get more normalized or vice versa? I think. Every year that I've been practicing, it's become more and more normalized. And there's been a lot of effort by the field to destigmatize and normalize. Nice. I think with the introduction of all social medias, including this right here, that's how it's happening. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with what people think therapy is. So as we've been growing as a field, especially you see it in popular culture now all the time. Um, mental health is addressed in shows, movies, um, celebrity, all that stuff. So it's becoming a lot more like, huh, don't hide it. Yeah. Not this like shame, shame, shamey shame thing. Um, so in my opinion, it's, it's on the upward trajectory for sure. Good. That, that's what I've been seeing. And people I talk to closely, everyone's been pushing for it. So I've seen it move positive so far. Fantastic. Yeah. And so obviously you and I, we went to Iowa State together. Mm -hmm. um, I know a handful of your friends, you know, shout out to Stu. We uh -huh. got a shout out to Stewie. Yep. Um, with that being said, how would you say like within your own male dominated friendships mm -hmm. how has that kind of narrative of mental health been for for you to them or them to you have you seen improvements there as well i think it really depends on also like your role in the friend group too and a lot of and i can't speak for every male but my male relationships are really built on like authenticity so the ones that I've carried with me throughout all this time, there's always been this underpinning of safety, always. Nice. And so the process is we've all got to grow together. Um, they have all different life experiences than I do. And also me being the professional in the group, um, I get to serve that role if anyone has questions, if anyone needs resources. Um, advice, anything like that, even though my brand of therapy, I don't really give advice. So um, it's just allowed us to almost compound on that level of safety so that we can all have this kind of organic growth together as a group. I don't think anyone in my male dominated relationships really sees like, especially nowadays, that mental health is like this weakness. It's all something to improve on, just like any skill or anything 
we're interested in doing. So in my relationships, especially with my boy Stu, <laughs> it's it's always that positive two-way street. Love that. It was a cultivation of that safety, empowerment, and especially the connective piece. Yeah. And those are like the three undertones of any trauma work I do is that safety, empowerment, connection piece. Oh my gosh. But on the other hand, I'm looking to foster all three of those always with any like positive relationship I want. That's what we all do. And that's what we've all been pushing to do, which I think is, I don't know if it's new, but now it's vocal. Yes. Okay, is that great. is fantastic. Everyone wants to feel safe, seen, heard, yep. loved, right? Yep. And I think that that's something that as soon as I mention when people are like asking for resources or whatever it may be, and it's kind of my rebuttal when they have certain things to say, it's like, well, you know, I, I know you want to feel safe and, and feel heard. Like we can yep. provide that. We can get you to those resources. And then also... I think you did a really good job of phrasing. You said you you get to serve your friends in that way, right? Because it doesn't make them a burden. It provides deeper or deeper relationships between you guys. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big stereotype around mental health right now. Yeah. With some people. But There's- that's fantastic that you that you have those strong relationships. I think also one more thing I would love to touch on um, before we kind of transition um, would be, I've been seeing a lot. So we just had like a TikTok go viral, which we love just because we can expand, you know, access hopefully to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had so many people just like reach out and feel that, how do I phrase this? I guess reach out and feel like they're a lost cause. So I guess I'm curious, you know, do you have a any words of affirmation or, you know, any encouragement to those people who are feeling like therapy is their way past their prime for it? So for those individuals that, you know, there's there's no hope, there's no help. Um Therapy's not going to be beneficial anyway. What's the point? All things like that. Really, I'm looking to come back to that initial lie that was presented with someone or your environment didn't meet the needs you had when you were small. So our first and most primal need as people is a sense of connection. We have to have it or we don't make it, period. So when we're like little babies and let's say we have a narcissistic parent, Let's say we have a really chaotic environment. Maybe siblings are absolutely wild and mom and dad or whoever raised you can't come to support your needs. And that happens a lot over time. Or maybe they shame you for having them. Maybe baby cries and they hear things like shut up or stop crying. Or you just hear screams and don't know what that means. When we're small like that, we have no way of discerning between they, that's them, and I me. So when we're an adult, that carries over. We still think we've internalized that as we're the problem and we're bad. Mm. Something's wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm hopeless. Nobody will love me. All of those things, usually I see very old. 
trauma is definitely not your fault, especially if it feels like it is hopeless, because I'm guessing that's how it's felt since you've been itty bitty from an environment that failed you, mm. not because it's actually you. Those are the people I want to help the most because that's the strongest, oldest shame-based narrative that exists. And it's one of the oldest lies that gets in the way of therapy. Yeah. We can't help that somebody wasn't there. Yeah. You give us that back. But to all those that feel that way, we can unlearn all of that. Because right. it's, it's been a lie since we've been small. Yeah. That lie is probably exactly how you've made it here till now. In the beginning, it helped you survive that environment. Mm. But now it is just a survival skill. That's a great point. And we can unlearn all of those. Right. And whenever you're like isolating, whenever you're a lot of people are trying to feel, you know, they're isolating, they're hiding away. That's when they want to be seen the most. Right. So that's like a great time to really extend a hand and get them into therapy. In the norm philosophy, the very first thing you learn is that connection for those that had it disrupted like that, it is the single most thing they want in life. But on this, the other end of the coin, it is the most terrifying thing to, but much like a plant grows towards sunlight, we grow towards connection. Yeah. That's taken right from NARM. So <clears throat> that's usually where I start with people. That's the first one that manifests that old. I love that. Fantastic. Well, I do see we are running out of time, um, but I do want to do, you know, I feel like you've already made a really strong statement, but I do want to do our calls to action. really quickly, you know, mine is short and sweet. I want everyone to go to Tyler's website. I will have it linked. Check out not only um, the types of therapy, not only the blog, but just kind of run through there and see what fits because it's really beautifully put. It's a really safe space. Great for all the knowledge and you can look into kind of what therapy might suit you. Well, I definitely appreciate the shout out. Yes. In terms of call to action, I think I'll just build upon all the things that I've been talking about already. And it has to do with that, that shame component, that lie that's potentially in here. So it's really about intentionally looking for what is this thing trying to say about me, the person. Mm. So we go back to the math test example. Is this trying to say I'm dumb? Is this trying to say I'm less than? Is this trying to say that I'm not good enough? If we can start looking for it, we can find how our systems and structures are trying to keep us safe. But it's doing it in a very negative way that is very, very untrue. Mm. It has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has nothing to do with your worth or value. It has everything to do with you learned how to do something to survive an environment that failed you. It's not your fault. So looking for that lie 
is how we start to say, okay, where did I have to learn this to make? Mm. And it also makes those things untrue because they are. Yeah. Really looking for representation. What is it saying about me? And also you can do it in the positive. If you connect with someone, if you laugh with a loved one, if you do something well, what is that saying about you? Saying about that I am good. I have whatever good means. I have value. I can do it. I'm capable. Yes. Those are authentic. Don't believe the lie. We can't believe the lie. I love that. But they try to come up a lot. Yeah. Oh, I bet. We protect from negatives Mm. way, way more effectively than we lean into positive. So fascinating. Wow. Well, we'll definitely have to have you on here again. Um, Like I said, we're going to link everything. Y'all need to go check it out. Um, How do you feel about getting some DMs? just when people have questions and things. That is perfectly fine with me. Fantastic. We're throwing that on here as well. Check out his Instagram. Um, thank you so much for joining of us. Thank you. The Clubhouse. We seriously, I think the amount of education and info you just dropped is like absurd. And it's going to touch so many lives. Well, we'll have to do it again. Yes, yes. So thank you so much. Um, and with that being said, go out there and be more heartfelt. As always, if you or someone you know is in crisis, to speak with someone immediately, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-2855. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Contact Lifeline Crisis Chat or contact the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, at one 800 950 6264 or text NAMI N-A-M-I to 741741. Thank you and don't forget to be more heartfelt.